I suppose it's a kind of flaw in libertarian thinking, which is we don't know what we like and what we want in advance. There are certain products that always fascinate me because they're products which often seem totally... I've got a Japanese toilet which cleans your ass, right? How and, did you get a Japanese toilet, by the way? Well, Just... I, I, need, <laughs> I need to replace a toilet. And I had briefly stayed in a hotel which had one. Okay. And once you've, had, once you've experienced a Japanese toilet... An ordinary toilet and cleaning your ass with dry paper seems just fundamentally barbaric. It's crazy. There there are certain things where you've got to force yourself to do them because you discover benefits that you didn't anticipate. Welcome back to The Brain and Brand Show. I'm Timothy Maurice, and thank you for choosing to download this episode. And also, thanks for taking this journey with me. It feels really great to have you tagging along. This podcast is a journey of exploring how to apply neuroscience and behavioral psychology to build better personal and professional relationships and brands. How to build more influence with your clients and stakeholders. How to understand the brain better in order to advance your goals and dreams. My mission is to make brain science simple and accessible so you can incorporate it from the smallest level to the biggest decisions of your life. After my most recent three-part applied behavioral science series, I couldn't think of a better person to bring on than Roy Sutherland. Roy first appeared on the show prior to the pandemic, and since then we've built a bit of a rapport. So today, I bring you a catch-up conversation with the author of Alchemy, the surprising power of ideas that don't make sense, and of course, the Ogilvy advertising legend himself. But it's not just his career experience and why I have so much regard for Roy. It's his bold thinking about our human experience and his comedic timing. It's those little things with him that makes him who he is. In today's show, we explore the power of the little things to shift human behavior. We explore how small changes in a sentence can change everything, how a small shift in thinking about race could shift attitudes towards each other, how offering more choice could change an anti-vaccinator's mind. We even talk about the power of nature to supercharge your immune system. If you're curious about branding, human behavior, and change, stay locked in. Truthfully, this was just Roy and I catching up, and we decided to record the conversation. So, welcome to a behind-the-scenes conversation with myself and Roy Sutherland. Enjoy. Roy Sutherland, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on. What a fantastic title as well. How can I resist? (laughs) You're known for directing a big agency, having big talks with millions of viewers, a big intellect, big books. But today we're going to talk about the little things. Are you okay with that? Yeah, absolutely happy. Yeah. So I want to start the conversation by contrasting two, two spaces. One space is solitary confinement. And the second space is New York's Times Square. And just how much the environment will influence who we become how we behave. Because part of my thinking has been, Roy, that it feels like we are completely underestimating how much the environment is driving our behavior. So I want to start there for anyone who's confused about behavioral science, who's confused about how the environment influences free will. I want to start there. I think this is absolutely vital, which is the way we perceive things depends on context. And relatively small tweaks to context change 
what things are, that if you recontextualize something, or if you kind of reconceptualize something, you reframe something, you tell a different story about it, you can effectively turn it into a completely different thing. And so that gets back to your point about the little things, which is why I suppose the book's called Alchemy, that actually um, surprisingly small tweaks to surprisingly small things um, can have, and this is, of course, a lesson. It's a lesson from meteorology. It's a lesson from Edward Lorenz. It's a lesson from complex adaptive systems that actually they're highly sensitive to small earlier changes in the environment could lead to fairly massive changes later on. Yes. Yeah. And this seems to be doubly true in psychology because contrary to what economists think, where in order to make someone massively more predisposed to do something or buy something, you have to change either the price, which is a big change, yeah. or you have to change the thing itself and the objective role that it performs. Uh, that isn't necessarily true. That leads people to assume that um, the scale of the input is proportionate to the scale of the effect. And I think that's a dangerously expensive illusion. And yes. there are already large biases in that way, by the way, in the sense that generally large-scale interventions are seen as high-status activities. You know, yes, I yes, have yes. a budget of three million pounds <laughs> and I'm seeking to achieve this, okay? And yeah. small, trivial things... For example, you know, changing the name, changing the packaging, uh, telling a different story about it, things which seem you know, pretty tangential and trivial at first glance. Those tend to be low status things because they're small, smaller budget activities. Uh, they're regarded as, you know, relatively unimportant. And that focuses, I think, everybody's attention disproportionately on what big things can we do to have a big yes. effect. And yeah. that's, a, that's a costly belief. It's a costly tendency. Because in a way, I'll, I'll say two things very simply in defense of kind of nudge theory. And of course, the very word nudge is indicative of something fairly small. It's not a shove. True, uh, it's, that's true. And two things. Okay, in the order of intervention, logically, we should look at persuasion first, incentive second, and compulsion third. And okay. yet, particularly in things like government, which is dominated by, as Richard Taylor said, lawyers who occasionally take advice from economists, okay, what mm. we tend to do is we look at legal interventions first, economic incentives second, and then only in the event that those two fail do we go, oh, God, I suppose we'll have to try some persuasion. Now, you don't have to be a hardcore libertarian to say, I think this is probably the wrong way around. Sure. And the other thing we tend to do is we tend to look at big, big interventions first and small interventions second. Yeah. Now, I'm not, I'm not arguing, by the way, and I think there's a danger that the world of behavioral science and the world of nudging goes this way, where you try and solve everything with a nudge and only with a nudge. I think quite yeah. often there are multiplicative effects, that it's a nudge, you know, plus, plus. an incentive. Okay? Sure, sure, sure. Now, I'll give you a perfect example of that. You know, a sale... A retailer's sale, okay, is a combination of an economic incentive, the prices are lower, with a hell of a lot of psychological stuff going on, um, okay. which is, you know, first of all, there's scarcity. The, the sale only lasts, you know, 
two weeks. Uh, I'm also shown pictures of people queuing outside the shop before the sale opens, which (laughs) creates kind of social proof. And then if you go into the shop, there are lots of people desperately going around bargain hunting and you think, gosh, I really ought to join in. I often had a question to ask, which is, you know, an economist would say the entire reason sales are successful is because the prices are low. And I go, Mm. I reckon you could go around Harrods or Selfridges or Macy's, okay, and you could secretly and quietly reduce some of the prices to the sale price without making any noise around it. And actually, the sales wouldn't go up very much at all. It's actually the razzmatazz and the social proof and the scarcity, all that other stuff and the massive sign in the window saying sale. Those are the things that are driving the behavior as well as obviously the economic component. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things I think we need to get ourselves away from is in our desperation to prove how effective nudges are, we desperately try and try pure nudge interventions without asking the other question, well, what if you multiply this with something else? Which brings me to a little bit of research I did in New York where I wanted to question the narrative before, before Uber came about, about a black man can't get a taxi in New York. I thought it was something deeper than that. And so I went and I, went and I asked over 50 taxi drivers, what is yeah. the real issue? What is the real issue? Is it that a bigger conversation around where black people live? Is it a bigger conversation around, um, you know, how you are thinking about maximizing the economy and making money? And it turns out what, what was revealed was the average person who is visiting Manhattan is coming with big budget, big goals, big dreams. And for the most part throughout history, Black people who you were picking up in New York were going to the outer boroughs. They were going to Brooklyn. They were going to Harlem. They were going somewhere really far. And therefore, you weren't able to bring somebody back into the city. So when they saw a young white woman, there was a good chance that she was there on holiday and she's excited with her friends and she's in a Sex in in the City tour and she was going to disproportionately tip. And he would be able to pick someone else back up. And the black person represented someone just going home. So the idea around the narrative of uh, they didn't want to pick up a black person was based on the fact that these young tourists were being nudged into this heightened state of high level tips. And we even discovered there were times when a lot of these taxi drivers were getting something like $200 tips because these women were so excited. It's an interesting one because, by the way, I mean, part of it is, and they're not telling you this, part of this is pure and simple prejudice, okay? Sure. But there are inferences that are also being made. So I'll give you an example of this from London, funnily enough. Um, We used to live in Bayswater in London, which uh, has a lot of hotels there. And my wife, when heavily pregnant... Uh, would walk around the corner and there'd be three taxis lined up and she had to get to work and she was quite keen to get a taxi across Hyde Park to the Victoria and Albert Museum where she worked. And as she approached the taxis, quite often, if there was only one, it would drive off. Okay. Mm. Now, this wasn't, I think, prejudice against um, uh, pregnant people. 
Um, yeah. I, she's white, just to let you know. Uh, but one of the things that they were prejudiced against was the fact that she wasn't carrying a suitcase. Now, you're going to, And the reason for this ah. is the reason the taxis were hovering around that area is they really wanted a Heathrow airport job. I see. These I see. guys, there, there are certain taxi drivers in New York who basically do Heathrow and back. They're not, I mean, it's a minority of taxi drivers. They're generally despised by the other taxi drivers. It gets very complicated, but they're only really interested in airport and back. And so mm. anybody obviously pregnant, you're not going to be flying, but also not carrying a suitcase was pretty likely not to be traveling to the airport. The reason these people were hovering around in this area near to the hotels, because there were about six of them there, was to get the kind of what was 50, 60, 70 pound Heathrow job. Sure. And, the then, of course, so, and then, of course, from Heathrow, a 70 pound journey back. Exactly. Exactly. And so they also knew that the onward journey was going to be of interest to them. And yeah. so if they recognized my wife or simply inferred that there was no chance she was going to Heathrow, they basically drove off. Yeah. And so, some, you know, some of these things, if you think about it, um, uh, you, you know, there are many people who'd much rather get a tourist fare, which is likely to go somewhere where there'll also be cabs, than a resident fare. We have a problem in Britain, which isn't actually racism. It's side of the riverism, which is um, taxi drivers. They, I, to be honest, it's more, I think it's more, more in myth than reality now, but this was a real thing. 30 years ago when I first moved to London, which is, sorry, mate, not going south of the river at this time of night. Okay. Mm, yes. And yes, they yes, refuse yes. to take you south of the Thames after kind of 10, 11, and they do everything they could to avoid it, partly because they knew that there weren't going to be any people going south of the river back north of the river um, after 11 o'clock at night. You know, it, mm. south of the river is much, much more residential than north proportionately. Sure. And so, yeah, but I mean, I mean, by the way, I mean, it, 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 I'm, I'm sure part of it's, you know, things like, you know, the, the tipping prejudice, um, you know, which which exists and some of it's racial prejudice. But it's always worth it is always worth picking those things to bits and saying, what are the yes. other confounding factors? Yeah, I mean, if you, you go out to Brooklyn, I mean, this is something that is fascinating me as. I spend most of my life as an out-group member. I'm communicating with groups of people who don't look like me. And instead of taking this sort of victim mode, I have taken a proactive, what I call triggering behavioral responses that I feel that, and it's also not kissing ass. I want to be very clear about that. Because I've just thought there's always something deeper alongside the prejudice that I'm Mm. very interested in. And, and from a communication perspective, I think there's a lesson here for brands, for governments to really yeah. be thinking about this conversation. And I'll give you a simple one. So if I go to Cape Town and I'm about to present at a conference or I'm in a meeting and 90% of the audience is going to be white or whatever. And I know that Cape Town is, Cape Town is a lifestyle city. Yeah. Cape Town is a city where it's about climbing mountains, running next to the beach, et cetera. So I will design into my conversation very early on lifestyle activities because I want to trigger, which is the bigger, the bigger part of this conversation, a little bit of chit chat in their biology, a little yeah. bit of affinity to them go, oh, he also climbs mountains. Oh, he also is a lifestyle person. Oh, oh, these little small nudges inside of their biology that I really feel we underestimate the value of those. On so many levels. 
Do you remember the, are you a fan of Curb Your Enthusiasm? I, a little bit, yeah. Yeah. There's the episode where Leon Black borrows Larry's spectacles in New York. They're, they're playing, they're, yeah, they're yeah, playing yes. then spectacles. He's playing them to play Max Bailey-Stock in, um, uh, in a musical. But Leon claims yes. that everybody treats him completely differently because of the yes. spectacles. Yes, 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 yeah, yes, I, yes. I, You see, these little things are really interesting because um, uh, I, I find it fascinating. I mean, one of the things I was talking about recently is, and this always delights me because occasionally on Twitter people come up with, you know, further affirmative evidence. And I was saying, for example, that if you, if you opened a cafe, uh, leave the tables and chairs outside the cafe, even if it's raining and nobody's going to use them. Because mm. from 400 yards away, it says to our unconscious, there's a cafe over there and we're open. Yes. Because yes. we yes. automatically yes. infer if the cafe weren't open, they would have stacked, they would have stacked the chairs away. You see? Exactly. And interestingly, yeah. someone got in touch with me and said, I actually ran a cafe. I worked there for four years. And at about four o'clock when we were getting close to closing and we didn't want any new customers, we discovered that it really was just as simple as if you stack two or three of chairs, just just two or three sets of chairs, not all of them, just you, you start to stack your collection of chairs, uh, you don't get any new customers because it signals to people we're in the process of closing. So people, the clever thing about that is if you stack a couple of chairs, but not all the chairs, people might come in for takeout <laughs> coffee, but the kind of people who are going to sit yes. around for 45 minutes, keeping you open till uh, exactly. you know, 30 minutes after you're paid. Okay. Those kind of people don't come in anymore. And it's a yes. brilliant little visual nudge just to say, yeah, if you, if, you know, if you want to just buy a coffee and clear the hell out of here, you're welcome. But, you know, if if you've got any plans to sit around here chatting with your friends over scones, uh, forget about it. And so we do we do react to all those little things. I mean, I had an interesting discussion about um, the fact that there you know there were fewer immigrants applying to advertising. Where I said, look, I'm sure some of this is some of this is simple nepotism, which is that if you know fewer people in an industry, okay you're less likely to apply. You know, so a lot of this is actually a kind of, it's closer to kind of nepotism than it might be to racism. But the other uh, thing I yes. said is, the other thing I said is, um, if you look at, if you look at my, old, my own family now, where, where, you know, my paternal lineage is an immigrant group, but Scottish, okay? And they actually, mm. my, grand, my great-grandfather moved from Scotland to Wales. And what he did is he opened a shop and then he married the woman who owned the, the shop whose parents owned the shop um and um ended up running a chain of shops what did he do next he got his kids as far as he could into education spent a fortune on it and basically sent them to medical school or law school okay okay <laughs> and i said you've got to ask the question okay let's assume you're a first generation immigrant and your kids doing reasonably well at school okay you will have a disproportionate inclination to translate that educational achievement into something with a career path. And mm. that means a profession of some kind. It might be, you know, pharmacy, it might be medicine, it might be law, it, you know, but one of those things where your qualifications secure you guaranteed low variance career progression. Okay. And as you know, I, I, you know, to be absolutely honest, you see, I think if my great grandfather's kids, have, ha, he having educated them, sent them to university, had gone into something that flaky like advertising, I think my great grandfather would have had a fit. And I didn't make the <laughs> point, okay, that you know, 
depending on your circumstances, would you, you know, would you always recommend someone with a really bright kid went there, went into advertising? Well, it depends on their their I suppose it depends on their attitude to risk. Because mm. I'll be absolutely honest with you, advertising is a very flaky career path. There are brilliant people who fail. To sure. be honest, there are awful sure. people who succeed. Yeah. Now, <laughs> the idea that if you're the child of a first, you know, if if you're the child of someone who's, let's say, driven a cab and sent their child to university, the, the understanding that there might be a prejudice in favour of, uh, you know, those those areas of employment where, you know, you pass the exams, you work hard, you will be... Know, guaranteed a certain yeah. level of prosperity versus sure. the ad industry, which is, to be honest, a little bit of a lottery. Uh, you know, we've also got to factor in preference alongside prejudice. Yes, and, yes. And yes. by the way, it's really important. One of the things that occasionally you occasionally get is if you say, yes, but it isn't just prejudice. Prejudice undoubtedly accounts for some of it, but there are other forces at work. You occasionally get people shouting at you saying, you, you know, you're not sufficiently understanding the problem. You're trying to play the problem down. Yes, and my argument exactly, is, no, no, no. Exactly. In trying to understand the various forces at work, some of which is prejudice in the case of the New York taxis. I'm not, I, I, I would find it hugely, um, but some of it is just, I want to pick up a tourist. I don't want to pick up a resident. Exactly. Exactly yeah. my point. Yes. I mean, what, one of the things that, that gave me a really interesting vantage point when it comes to this conversation is the fact you, that... You made a very interesting point, by the way, that actually in Cape Town, sharing a hobby... Yes. Um, generally, you can, uh, you know, being in someone's in-group can be something that you can kind of hack with fairly small things. Exactly. By what you know, I mean, you know, I always joke about this, but we used to have years ago in the... In the um, in the agency, a smoking room. Okay. Mm. Now, uh, the interesting thing about having a smoking room was that the people who smoke are a completely random cross section, more or less, in seniority and job function of the people in the building. And everybody within that smoking room was in the in group as smokers mm. because exactly. they felt an automatic solidarity as a sort of minority, you know, perhaps to some extent, slightly put upon group. And the affinity was almost automatic. And so creating, you know, creating little areas of affinity between people uh, is, um, I think, you know, a disproportionately potent approach. Yeah. yeah. And, and I've, I've experienced this with, I was in a 10-year relationship with one of Nelson Mandela's granddaughters, and her other grandfather was one of, um, was King Sabuza, who is known as one of the wisest kings in the world. Who, who, so her uncle is the current king of Swaziland, which is yeah, a small little country. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, what I found interesting was that you've, you've got this family dynamic that I was trying to navigate with these highly, you know, really sort of elite families where it was not about race, but to be able to signal that you understood class, that you understood privilege, that you understood as a person of color coming into this kind of wealthy African families, it was fascinating because it was often the smallest little thing where they would go, oh, you're one of us. Or like if I had on a tailored jacket and it wasn't custom made, I felt foreign. But if it was custom made, I felt like I was a bit royal. And yeah. No, I mean, that's really, really interesting in that um, I think 
there's a really interesting um, piece where someone's made a very interesting point, which never really occurred to me before, about school uniforms. And they say that actually school uniforms in some ways are the rules are quite open to everybody and it effectively allows everybody to play the game. Mm. Now, the problem you get when you get rid of school uniforms, which you tend not to have in the US, and there must be a few weird sort of private schools or military sure, sure, sure. have them, <laughs> but most of you don't. You no, know, no. Large swathes of the world still do. I mean, it's fascinating. You go to Australia, you go to India, you go to Africa, actually, and the Caribbean, yeah. and the schools have a uniform. And the argument is that you could say in one respect, making people wear a suit at work is a kind of imposition. It's a, you know, it's a cultural imposition. But on the other hand, the rules of formal business dress were kind of clear. You could copy them. Someone could explain them to you. And mm. If you were an outsider, you could effectively dress to fit in. I mean, yes. there was some weird shit going on like this. You wouldn't believe this in London. I mean, I had a friend back in the 80s who applied to Lloyd's of London and uh, applied to a few of the old kind of, you know, what you might call more traditional banking and finance firms. And one of the rules was if you turned up in your job interview with um, slip on shoes, not lace up shoes, basically you didn't get the job. Mm. <laughs> I mean, this was this was the kind of stuff. Now, what they said was that f- formal explicit rules are at least um, shareable. Yes. Whereas if you get the implicit rules of fashion like what happens to be cool and what isn't, okay? Mm. And you remove the school uniform and you play, you basically replace it with the cool code, okay? Mm. That's something which actually turns out to be, in some cases, more exclusionary than making people wear a uniform. Ah, interesting. Because the uniform yeah. says, you know, here are explicit rules. If you, if you obey them, it's satisfactory. The implicit stuff is often actually... Um, very, very kind of, um, uh, it, 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 it develops a whole load of codes which are deliberately arcane as a form of kind of exclusion. You know, the whole yeah. point of fashion is to exclude people who don't invest a huge amount of time <coughs> con- <coughs> concentrating on certain fashionable codes, which are, you know, completely baffling to me, to be absolutely honest, you know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the relative nuances of Canada goose coats and moose knuckle coats. Okay, I couldn't. <laughs> explain, I don't have got a clue what's going on. But among people who care about that shit, you know, there's a whole wealth of communicating going on, which is completely invisible to me. Yeah, and so yeah, I, I mean, I th- I think there's some interesting things where some effects, some things which are well intentioned, like you can wear what you like, which sounds like a perfectly sensible thing, might have deleterious effects that we don't notice. Yeah, I mean, my, I, one of the questions I've been having is, who's responsible for educating people about this? Shouldn't there be some curriculum at an early age where, you know, in schools and in homes that these are active conversations? Because if these little things are having these disproportionate effects on people, it feels as though this shouldn't just be an agency or high-level government conversation that on some level, we should be integrated in designing these conversations very, very early. Yeah, I mean, I mean, certainly we need, I mean, you know, inferences of this kind, which are all around us, we can't help but make them, okay? And in some cases, they may be unconscious. You know, I think that's a worthwhile insight. 
I think making people alert to this, there's been a kind of issue around unconscious bias training. Yes, um, exactly. And there, there's some evidence that it doesn't necessarily work. Yeah. But the counterpoint being that being alert consciously to decisions you take unconsciously, uh, just as a general mode of operation, isn't isn't actually a bad thing to do because, you know, there may be unconscious biases you hold, which actually, in the case of you know taxi drivers, actually you know a prejudice against locals and residential trips, where the tips likely to be lower over tourist tips, is at least understandable. But being aware of what you're doing here and what the reasons might be, but also on how it might be interpreted by the other party, okay. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you know, I've I've had cases where taxi drivers have cut me, okay, because they, you know, um, for a variety of reasons. You know, it's it, it. I mean, in one case, it's you know, one o'clock in the morning. It's a dangerous area. I might have appeared to have been drunk, possibly, because I was. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now, you know, I didn't I didn't infer that as racial prejudice. In some cases, I was baffled by it because I'm a white sure. guy in London, which is the capital of a largely white country. Had I been a person of colour, there's no doubt about what, what inference I would have drawn. You know, I've been yeah, stopped yeah, by yeah, the police yeah. on three occasions for reasons that made no sense whatsoever, right? I'm a middle-aged <laughs> white guy in a jag. I walk away and my, my inference is that cop's a bloody idiot. Right. You know, yeah, yeah, exactly, I mean, this was just exactly. not, I mean, he claimed I wasn't wearing a seatbelt when I was, this happened to me. Okay. And oh, wow. um, now, obviously the way you're going to actually interpret that experience depends on your circumstances. Sure. Sure. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, I just went away again. What the hell was all that about? You know, strangely, my, my wife said, don't, don't tell my, I was in my father-in-law's car. My wife said, don't, 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 don't tell dad that we were stopped by the police. And I said, yeah, yeah. I, I, I said, why, why the hell shouldn't I? It was ridiculous. And so I, I said, this is what happened. At which point my wife's father um, said exactly the same. He did exactly the same thing to me last week, you know. Yeah. And um, <laughs> so, you know, you get you get this weird shit going on. But I mean, it's uh, understanding the ability to put yourself in other people's shoes and understand what they perceive. Now, I'll give you a lovely example of this from just marketing, but it applies to all sorts of wider questions, okay? I always jokingly said, but only half jokingly, if you want to lose a customer for life, really, really easy, okay? Let them into your shop at five o'clock, just about as you're closing. Let them browse the shop. And when they come up to the till and say, I'd like to buy this thing, say, sorry, we're closed, okay? Mm, yeah, yeah. Now... If you want to win a customer for life, lock your shop two minutes early. OK, stand very close to the door. And if anybody tries the door and finds it locked, make a big show of unlocking the door and inviting them mm. in to buy something. Sure. Now, sure. now, in the first instance or the second, OK, the way you're looking at this is simply will we close at five o'clock. So if this person wants to buy something at five oh three. OK, um, uh, they're not allowed to because that's when we close up the till. And that's your mentality, okay? Mm. It's per I'm perfectly within my rights to close the shop at five o'clock. Sure, sure. But by allowing someone in and then refusing to sell them something, or by, you know, closing two minutes early and then refusing to unlock the door, the way the person interprets it, to interpret it is as a personal insult, okay? Yeah. I bet if I looked more important, was better dressed, was richer, was your best customer, um, you know, uh, I, you know, I bet if whatever it might be, you would have let me in, but you chose to insult me. 
Okay. Yeah. Now, similarly, if you unlock the door for the guy, to some extent, and there, there's a dry cleaning shop in my local town, which I haven't used for seven years, because I once turned up at like 5.01, and the guy was inside, and I wanted to collect my jacket, and he just gestured at the side and said, we're closed, one minute after wow. five. Wow, okay. wow, yeah. Now, yeah. I did collect the jacket, I'm not a fool, but I've never been back there for five years, as no. an act of slightly petulant revenge against him not holding the <laughs> shop open for me for two minutes, you know. And so it's always worth remembering what you do and how people interpret it are really, really different. Okay, yeah, that's, it, that's a, that 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 understanding that will just help us get on better. Yeah, and I've been thinking about. I've got a friend of mine who's been. She's got this new job with Booking dot com, and so we 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 were, we were at a coffee recently, and we were talking about how I felt the fact that they've labeled me a genius, and I've taken no more than I've I've used them a few times, but they've given me this extraordinary label right i remember it's, this it's yeah. a little thing yeah yeah yep. yeah and it's just amazing how they you know reframing something adding a different label but the small things and i'm going to go back to my point about the little things i i, I saw it's quite a conversation cute that in a way isn't it yeah. because normal loyalty programs kind of credit almost credit themselves okay you're a very valuable customer which basically means you've given us a lot of money yes and and whereas by actually suggesting that your experience with uh, Booking.com uh, is a reflection on your intelligence, it's quite clever. Yes, it's very clever. And I was th- I've been thinking about some of the things, like I saw a conversation with Dr. Fauci where they were sort of struggling in America. You know, I looked at my own family. I mean, everybody in my family, I just came back from the States and almost everybody in my family has gotten the, the vaccine, except for a couple's. A couple people who are just like, ah, you know, and the question for Dr. Fauci and the teams are, how do I get, how do we, how do we use this conversation <laughs> to trigger my 25 year old niece who's just going, you know, I've heard this, I've heard this, I've heard this. You know, what are some of your thoughts about this? This is one of the biggest conversations in the world right now. Yeah, it's really interesting because the anti-vaxxing figures vary. I mean, one success story I heard explained to me was that, um, Serbia unusually allowed you to choose which vaccine you received, Ah. which I thought was interesting as an experiment. I wouldn't have guaranteed that it would work. But sometimes if you allow people a choice, instead of thinking, do I, don't I, they start thinking, which vaccine should I have? And then Mm. the conversation moves on to a, you know, is it Moderna or AstraZeneca? Rather than is it a yes or a no? And ah. Serbia seems to have enjoyed pretty high vaccination rates using that approach. Uh, I don't know what the proportion of anti-vaxxers was originally, so it's not a fair comparison. By, by, oddly, France has a very, very high preponderance of anti-vaxxers. Um, a few communities in the UK, um, uh, interestingly, um, I think the community of African origin, as distinct from Caribbean origin, is much more likely to be sceptical. And there are some That's arguments true, yeah. that there are some arguments in certain communities that experience of medical experimentation, sort of the I think it was the Tuskegee experiment and so yes, yes, has yes, also yes. led to scepticism of the medical and scientific establishment. Uh, not yeah. unreasonably in that case, because it was got a, you know it was abominable. Um, but but it, it it is interesting. But I mean, in, in this case, it can just be indifference. Um, and it's worth remembering, of course, your niece isn't a, of an age group where she's significantly at personal risk. But sure. the value to her being vaccinated is actually, t- to a great extent, altruistic. Um, 
but on the other hand, I mean, uh, yeah, it, I mean, the, there is one thing which is to call on, call, call on it as a, you know, generally a, a social duty because you're far more likely in, in the case of a, let's say a 25 year old, you're far more likely to be doing a favor for someone else, like a relative than you are to be doing a favor for yourself because the mortality risk is tiny, but there are other conversations you can have like, you know, the small, but uh, not negligible risk. We've tended to make this all about mortality um, yes. But one of, you know, one of the things I, I make a point of is that with younger people, the small risk of young person's long COVID isn't negligible. You know, you really don't. Uh, want, yes. you, you, you really don't. You know, even, even if, to be honest, the illness itself isn't all that severe, you don't want to end up with a kind of version of ME where, you know, you just have incredibly low energy levels for post-viral fatigue syndrome of some kind is a really unpleasant thing to happen to you. And I, I made the point as well that when someone was talking about mortality risk, um, uh, uh, pure and simple as the statistic in question. And it's obvious we focus on that. But I said, I said to him, I said, just as a thought experiment, I said, um, I'll go to quite long, quite extreme lengths to avoid being unpleasantly ill for a week or 10 days. Yes. Okay? <laughs> Even if it doesn't involve hospitalization. I said, if you offered me a free first class flight to Barbados and back, and 10 days in a five-star hotel for free on condition that there was a one in three chance when I got home that I'd have really, really unpleasant flu for a week when mm. I got back. I wouldn't take that mm. deal. You know, I wouldn't take yes. a free holiday in Barbados with a one in three chance of, of really unpleasant flu when I got back. I go, to be absolutely honest, I'll, I'll pass on this. And so it's really, you know, it is worth remembering that the conversation has been exclusively about mortality and we probably just need to shift it ah. for certain age groups that, look, this is, you know, it's an unpleasant illness to have uh, for some people. For some people, it leads to disproportionately long-term consequences, even if the initial symptoms aren't bad. You know, why take sure. the risk for the sake of a jab? Yeah, I mean, I love, I love both examples. I know in South Africa, a lot of the conversations I've had with people is that, they're sort of forcing a single option on you. And yeah. I know there's been very little conversation about the unpleasantness, even if you, you know, if you don't go to the hospital. Those are great examples. Let, let's shift the conversation a little bit to Nudstock. I mean, yeah, last, year was, last year was phenomenal. I mean, I really enjoyed, uh, first of all, I was locked down in my, in my you know, little apartment here, but I enjoyed being able to log in and out and engage the various speakers that I... Uh, that I that I personally want to hear, but also I challenged myself and I said I'm going to go. To, I'm going to try a couple of talks where I have zero interest to see if it triggers something in me. And uh, I really enjoyed last year. Uh, share a little bit about what you guys learned from doing this online last year. Well, this was extraordinary because it had been a physical event, and um, one. Of, I, I mean, I think one of the most interesting things about about COVID is that you know I, I don't want to sort of sound like this kind of person what an interesting social experiment we lock everyone down for a year it's been unbelievably <laughs> unpleasant for sure, um, sure and it's been very very unevenly unpleasant i might add that you know the people who suffered people who live alone have suffered people who live in incredibly crowded households have suffered it's by the way it's worth remembering the last year is not an experiment in flexible working it's an experiment in being under house arrest Yes, so it's exactly. completely wrong to say I didn't like this. Therefore, flexible working is bad because this yeah. has been highly inflexible, albeit in the opposite direction. Correct. Yeah. And it's, it's also worth remembering that depending on your circumstances and temperament, 
you know, mm. um, the effect is very, very different. Um, and probably older people, you know, older people who possibly live further out, who've skipped more of a painful commute um, and have quite large homes um, are, you know, to some extent beneficiaries. Uh, if you've got the kind of job, obviously, where you can just do it from home, you've been a conceivably a beneficiary to other to other groups of people with certain jobs it's been absolutely murderous but nonetheless it is interesting to see that when we're forced to do something we do discover things that we never anticipated correct yeah and i think this is an argument for both creativity and uh experimentation in the sense that um it's very very difficult to fully predict um cause and effect in any complex system you know there are always going to be effects we never anticipated and you know one of the one of the interesting things has been first of all i, I didn't realize it could work from a technological level I, I mean genuinely when when the whole lockdown thing started one of the things i thought would be that zoom would collapse under the weight of uh, you know the sudden acceleration in use sure yeah, that, it makes that, sense, that, right? You know, that it surprised me that there weren't broadband meltdowns. Um, yeah. <laughs> it actually surprised me, by the way, that, you know, I don't know how it was in the US, but actually we, we, ought, to, we ought to just, you know, these are anonymous people who never get hero status, but the people in grocery retail distribution did a pretty cracking job. Because I must yeah. admit, in February 2020, I was thinking, okay, I'm glad we've got a lot of tinned foods in the house basically, because yeah, yeah, without yeah, our exactly. food, I'll be looking at this mouldy <laughs> potato in four weeks' time and going, you know, do I really, you know, I, I, I'm not sure I've got any choice. Yeah. In the end, when you look at it, it was kind of astonishing in the sense that, you know, occasionally I, had, I was down to my second favourite breakfast cereal. Right, exactly. But apart exactly. from that, the level of uh, deprivation was extraordinarily low. So the, the extent to which grocery retail distribution worked, you know, no, nobody's commented on it much. You know, but the only thing we actually saw was a massive run on toilet paper, which was just caused by an irrational panic, um, uh, which, which, yeah, was, yeah. which was caused by empty shelves, by the way, really. Um, yeah. But you're uh, right. So no it, one it, is it, talking about it. That's fascinating. But, but no one talks about that enough. Actually, no one talks about it. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody. Nobody says, you know, you know, I really admire the people working in, um, you know, grocery retail. <laughs> logistics. Distribution. You know. Exactly. But, but actually, you know, something about that. I mean, you know, I mean. I mean, I think it's interesting because it's actually a field which has also contributed hugely to economic growth. I mean, everything from containerization to, you know, the work that Walmart's done in distribution has been really important economically. But it's just in an unfashionable and invisible sector. But what is interesting is if and I, I was talking to someone from Qatar and in Qatar, they're debating having as part of their kind of green um, uh, program. Uh, they're debating having car-free days. And what is interesting about car-free days is, first of all, you can't replicate this experiment at small scale or individually. I mean, if if I don't use my car every third Sunday of the month, nobody notices, right? Correct. But what might happen is that if you force people not to use a car and everybody doesn't use a car simultaneously on a particular day, they'll discover things they like about it that they never anticipated. Wow. So there is something which is, you know, it's, it, it's a it's a kind of I suppose it's a kind of flaw in libertarian thinking, which is we don't know what we like and what we want in advance. I mean, there are certain there are certain products that always fascinate me because they're products which 
um, often seem totally... I've got a Japanese toilet which cleans your ass, right? How and, did you get a Japanese toilet, by the way? Well, Just... I, I need <laughs> to replace a toilet. And I had briefly stayed in a hotel which had one. Okay. And once you've had, once you've experienced a Japanese toilet, an ordinary toilet and cleaning your ass with dry paper seems yeah, just fundamentally yeah. barbaric, right? Completely. Which it yeah. is, by the way, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it is absurd. But, I mean, it's yeah. one of those cases where social norms are surprisingly potent. And, uh, you know, I mean, when you think about it, I always joke about this. You know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't clean our hands with, if our hands were muddy, we wouldn't attempt to clean them with dry paper we'd use some <laughs> liquid right and of course the Correct. islamic world gets this right because in the islamic world you have a kind of hose thing next to the yeah. toilet because you, yeah. you know for obvious reasons of hygiene for some weird reason the western world i mean americans won't even sit on a toilet seat that's been recently vacated by someone else and you occasionally get those rotating things which yeah, put a layer of plastic going around so that's yeah, just yeah. skin to skin contact but apparently cleaning your rectum with dry paper that's fine Okay. What is crazy? It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. crazy. It's crazy. There, there are certain things where you've got to force yourself to do them because you discover benefits that you didn't anticipate. True. And I, I find I find that really interesting. So the car-free days, I think, what will happen is people will go, "Well, I never really thought of this, but you know, I suddenly talk to my neighbours because I'm walking past them, not driving past them, and." You know, when I go to the local restaurant, it's just locals there because it's a car-free day. So it's a bit friendly and I get to talk to people I wouldn't normally talk to. And then what happens is the locals start putting on special offers. You know, the, the cafes start putting on special offers for the car-free days, which are dis- disproportionately targeted at local custom. <coughs> and things, you start discovering things. And I always say there are far more things we can post-rationalize than there are things we can pre-rationalize. True, true. It's one of the reasons you need creativity and you need experimentation because you don't really know what you want until you've tried it. Exactly. It's like, like, uh, yeah. And as a result, I think, you know, one of the things I think that we need more of is just experimental temporary legislation, which is instead of having this massive battle between X and Y, okay, on the assumption that whatever legislation is enacted will be permanent, One of the things we could do is just to say, we're going to instigate laws for car-free days for two years, okay? And it'll be, you know, I don't know, one Sunday every four weeks, okay? That's a brilliant idea. And then after the two years, the legislation is going to die. But after the two years, we're also going to have a discussion about whether we want to reintroduce it or not, because now we'll be having a discussion on the basis of informed opinion rather than Mm. hypothetical opinion. Yeah, you remove the idea of some ideas being forced on you completely for life. I, I, think, I think we made a mistake with the Sabbath, okay, which yeah. is we went from, you know, I mean, you had the extremes in Wales where pubs couldn't open on a Sunday, okay? Mm. I mean, there were parts of Wales where you couldn't buy a drink on a Sunday. Uh, there were, you know, shops were closed. Uh, you know, you, Germany is still a bit like that, by the way. If you go to Germany, yeah. the, the, the yeah. retail opening hours are really strange. And Same then, here, South Africa as well. We realized we realized that was silly, right? That okay, we've mm. probably gone a bit far, and it's a bit unfair yeah. to people. If you think about it, if you're working five days a week and the shops are closed for half the weekend, that's a bit unfair on people who've got things to do. But we what we didn't do, what we didn't do, which we should have done, is said, actually, let's get rid of let's get rid of most of the Sunday trading laws, but actually 
one day every month, one Sunday every month, or one Sunday every eight weeks. We'll just keep them, okay? Yeah. And then we can have an intelligent discussion about, you know, okay. I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't, I, you know, I wouldn't want to deprive anybody, but having the odd day, which is completely non-commercial, where you can't go mm. shopping, you can't, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and we, we, so you know, we probably what happened is it became ideologically polarized, and what got frozen out of the debate was what about just keeping some Sundays special with this upcoming nudge stock? That that was fascinating. Sorry, because what happened was we we were it was always a physical event. We did stream it live, and some people watched it streamed. But mm. what was interesting is that when uh, so it's on the eleventh of June, by the way, nudgestock.co.uk. It's uh, free. Yeah. Um, yep. completely free to attend. One of the things we noticed is we suddenly w- went virtual because of COVID. And we said, okay, we can either cancel this or we can go, we can go virtual and we can go big. And that's yeah. why it lasts for 12 hours. And, and um, you know, we don't realistically expect many people to watch it from beginning to end. Um, some people, we always stream it over YouTube, by the way, so that you can kind of, if you've got a smart TV, you can kind of have it on the background, you know, and get, sure. one of the things we said is, look, no one's going to willingly use the, lose the use of their laptop. For 12 hours okay? no no that's a great point yeah so you know so that was that was just a useful learning i think and one of the things that was extraordinary we got 120,000 people and one of the 120,000 people yep that Incredible. was the peak obviously it wasn't, it wow, wasn't 120,000 sure. for the whole 12 or 14 hours we started in sydney australia we ended in hawaii um, that was a kind of east to west journey nice Part of the nice. joy we discovered when when you go online is that um there's no marginal cost. So there's no, there are no catering costs and there's no constraint on the number of seats. So the marginal mm. cost of an additional attendee is nil and the opportunity cost of an attendee is nil. Because I ah. occasionally, in the previous physical nudge stock, we were limited in the number of student tickets we could offer, not because we minded students watching, but if you simply ended up with 50% student attendance at the physical event, that meant you couldn't get a seat for the marketing director of Nestle or the marketing director Got of it. Barclays, you see. Got and it. so we had to constrain student attendance. And suddenly we said, well, the great thing about marketing this is we don't have to worry about what the mix of attendance is because everybody who attends is a bonus. And so we went very noisy in promoting it. And part of the reason we went noisy is obviously that, you know, I don't think we'll have as big an attendance. Will we have 120,000 this coming year? I mean, you never know. But okay, it'll certainly be. I mean, we've we've got something like 8000 registrants now after only being open for registration for a week. Okay, so it's it's going to be a big event. And one of the interesting things, I think, you mentioned noise in Kahneman's book. I think one of the one of the things we tend to do is when we compare two things, is certain comparisons are salient and certain comparisons aren't. And there's always a kind of asymmetry in perception. And the example I always gave of that is when you had a video conference in 2015, everybody was comparing it to a physical meeting. So if you had just a meeting on Zoom or you had a meeting on Microsoft Teams or whatever it might Yeah, be, Skype, whatever, yeah. People would come out of it and go, yeah, it was all right, but it wasn't as good as being there face-to-face. You know, it's not the yeah, same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I yeah. used to occasionally say, what you're not noticing here is the meetings that take place that wouldn't have happened at all if you'd require them to be physical. I mean, you're in Cape Town, right? 
Is that right? Uh, no, in Johannesburg now. Today I'm in Johannesburg. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. You're in Joburg. I'm in London. Now, we can meet physically. And there are two alternatives. Yeah. Either it's once a year when you happen to be in London or I happen to be in Joburg. Okay. Yeah. Or it costs a few thousand dollars. Okay. Exactly. This exactly, meeting exactly. has cost absolutely nothing. There's, I think you're an hour ahead or an hour behind. I can never quite remember how sure. the time zones yeah. work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, South Africa, by the way, stands, I think, to benefit extraordinarily, given your time zone, from a world where more and more, it, it's what's called distributed service sector productivity. In a blog post by Noah Smith, who's an economist, he argues that actually the widespread use of video conferencing could lead to an extraordinary productivity surge in service industries. Yeah, I found that out with, with just quickly, I found that out. I was in the U.S. with my parents for about five months, and I couldn't communicate or do any work or consulting with people um, in Australia. The time difference was just chaotic. And being back here has just been nothing but a oh, yeah. pleasure. The, the Greenwich yeah. Meridian is a great place to be. Thereabouts. Yeah. As an English-speaking yeah. guy on the Greenwich Meridian, I mean, Ireland will do well, South Africa will do well. Yeah. New Zealand, I've got an interesting theory about New Zealand, which is that if you're in any kind of... Now, bear in mind that New Zealand is, you know, absolutely lovely in terms of uh, what you can do in terms of outdoor activities and spectacularly beautiful. My hunch with New Zealand is if you work for an international business in New Zealand, you could have working hours, which are literally 6 to 10 in the morning and then 7 to 11 in the evening. And mm. therefore, you can kind of cover off both the West Coast and actually conceivably the East Coast of the United States and Europe. Now, there you've ah, got... And there's some really interesting anomalies here. Um, I always loved... I discovered that... Um, uh, rather bizarrely, as I thought, I think it was DHL, it might have been uh, one of the other carriers, opened a massive hub in, um, I think it was Juneau, Alaska. So it's a uh, kind of weird place. Okay. And their sure. argument with Alaska was that you're actually within eight hours flying time of pretty much sort of 85% of the world's GDP. Interesting. Isn't that interesting? interesting. So you think it of Alaska as being on a kind of promontory as being yeah. stuck out in the middle of nowhere. But <laughs> yes. in another respect, it's actually extraordinary. Vancouver is an interesting place. You know, the West, you know, <clears throat> the West Coast is quite interesting in that respect, in that it's uh, you, you're, eight, you're eight hours or nine hours from Hong Kong, I think. Maybe it's a little more. Okay. So okay. interestingly, in Vancouver, um, one of the things Brits tend to get wrong is they, uh, they, they tend to assume that it's massively more expensive to fly and longer to fly to the West Coast of the US than it is to the East. And actually, Vancouver is slightly longer than New York as a flight, but not by much, okay? Sure. Because you sure. simply go over the pole. And actually, Vancouver is a much better flight than New York because on the way back, you actually get a proper night's sleep, whereas Boston is a pain in the ass as, as yeah, a yes. <laughs> eastbound flight. The Boston flight is about, what, five hours 40. So yeah, you've just yeah. about finished fiddling with your seat and watching the movie. <laughs> And you time, go, shit, I've got two hours sleep, you know. Exactly. exactly. So I, I find this, I mean, noise is a really interesting concept. I haven't read Kahneman's book, but the other thing is perceptual asymmetry. How the way we, we are highly sensitized to some things, like it's not as good as a physical meeting. Yeah, I, used to, yeah. I used to get people going, it's not as good as a physical meeting. I go, yeah, but you're in Bozeman, Montana, right? This guy's in Delhi. I'm in London, mm. right? Yeah. Just to coordinate a physical meeting would take eight months. 
Exactly. Then, then it would, you know, then it would cost six thousand dollars. And basically, the alternative to this meeting isn't a physical meeting; it's that we never meet at all. You never meet. Period. I mean, I, that's exactly what's happened with the podcast. My podcast went from being listened to probably in four countries to about thirty-two countries, and that would have never in a million years happened. First of all, I'm not that good, but if, <laughs> but you're a brilliant fact, podcaster. You know, yeah. So, but. You know, Roy, I want I want to sort of move to wrapping this conversation up. I'll, with, tell, you, I'll, I'll tell you a little story. Yeah. I don't want to I don't want to sound like Mr. Altruism. Okay. 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 One, one, one little interesting thing is I think that the uh, world will slightly align on linguistic rather than geographical lines. Okay. Okay. So what I've noticed is my the the contact I've had with non Anglophone Europe, sort of France, Germany, Italy. Okay. Uh, in the last year and a bit, hasn't changed at all. About the same, okay? Oh, interesting. <laughs> My contact with people in Canada, the US, India, South Africa, um, to some extent Asia, bit le- and Australia, okay, has gone up by a factor of 10. Oh, wow. Now, to give you a little story about Zoom, I, I, I don't like telling this story, and I haven't told it before, because it makes me sound like, hey, uh, you know, it, it, I don't know if you know the... the out- <laughs> Have you ever heard? Have you ever seen that wonderful blog, which is called "The Humanitarians of Tinder"? No, just no. loads of people whose Tinder photos show them, like you know, in a village helping. Okay, okay, meetings, <laughs> you know what I mean. Okay, yeah, here's me at the orphanage, in you know, yes, whatever. Okay, yes, yes, and yes. it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful blog because it's kind of everybody basically going out to Africa to get a Tinder photo. I mean, it's yeah, 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 of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I don't, I don't want to sound like one of those guys, but I helped a guy in Botswana get a scholarship in an advertising school in Cape Town, okay? Oh, wow. Right now, I just said, oh, look, my view is, okay, I I can't really go to Ogilvy and say there's this guy in Botswana who wants advice on how to get into advertising, so um, can I fly out to, you know, okay. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. As a phone call, it might have happened, but it would have been a bit boring, and I wouldn't have, you know, it wouldn't have been quite the same. But those... Those completely, I wrote a piece about this in The Spectator, which starts off by talking about Ramanujan's letter to G.H. Hardy. This guy, he's working for £10 a year in 1913 in the port of Madras, now Chennai, right? And he's just this maths prodigy. He hasn't been to, he couldn't afford to go to university because his parents were too poor, but he's just an obsessive mathematician. Um, And... Uh, the other mathematicians he talked to says, your results and your inferences are extraordinary. It turns out this guy's called um, Ramanujan, and one of the greatest mathematicians of the last century. And he wrote a letter to G.H. Hardy. And Hardy, of course, if you're the professor of mathematics at Cambridge, to be honest, quite a lot of mathematicians are kind of mad. And so you go, oh, God, it's one of, <laughs> one of those loony letters. And Hardy, yeah. I think, first of all, spent the morning thinking, oh, God, it's one of those letters. And then the... The, the, the math findings in the letter continued to beguile him all, all day. So he went back to the letter, took it seriously. Eventually, Ramanujan got invited over um, to England and was a highly, signif- a highly significant mathematical figure um, from a completely unexpected source, you know. Yeah. And I always make the point that, you know, um, one of the interesting things about the internet, okay, and it's worth making this point, is that your location on the network has no bearing on the value you derive from it. So it's very egalitarian geographically. Sure, sure. The telephone's a bit like that, although obviously, of course, it, historically, some calls were a lot more expensive than others. So the telephone has only become like that very recently. Long before that, going back to about 1840, you had the penny post in the UK. 
Now, I didn't know this, but Babbage, the kind of father of the difference engine or the father of the computer, was involved in the mathematics of postal distribution. And he campaigned along with a guy called Roland Hill. But Babbage was a first rate mathematician. He did the modeling that said the weird thing about postal services, he noticed, and it requires quite a lot of network intelligence, is that if enough people send letters, distance doesn't actually matter to the cost. Because through the mm. core trunk routes, you're sending so many letters that the cost of transportation per letter is absolutely negligible. All the costs are in handling and in last mile distribution and in collection. Yes. yes. So collection costs money, sorting costs money and delivery costs money. But those three are constants for any letter, whether you're sending it, you know, a mile away or whether you're sending it to the other end of the UK. So they said mathematically, actually, counterintuitively, it makes sense just to charge one penny to any letter. There used to be penny posts within London and penny posts within towns. But Babbage looked at the maths and said, you can actually do this at national scale. You can have the same price for a letter where it, no matter where in the UK. And then they extended it to the imperial penny post, which, to be honest, never made any money. And it, but probably because it didn't last long enough for people to actually really take advantage of it. I think the First World War killed it. But Ramanujan's letter to J.H. Hardy, which was from Chennai, Madras, to Cambridge, cost one penny. Ah, interesting. <coughs> the, Okay, realistically, someone earning £10 a year, you know, that's that's like £10, $15, $20, $20 in modern money. Sure, sure. But it's still affordable. Yes. Now, yes. the interesting thing is, if you look at air travel, okay, you look at rail travel, you look at road travel, your location, your proximity to a node or a hub is massively decisive in terms of the value you derive from the network. Mm. And so it tends to drive concentration of wealth creation and concentration of human beings. Yeah. Now, I read a book about this one called The Geography of Thought. The Geography oh. of Thought really unpacked that, yeah. I mean, one interesting thing with the Geography of Thought, by the way, is if you can transmit ideas without people having to move around, right? And I think video, I think we'll get better at this, because don't forget, it's not just a revolution in what we're doing now. It's also a revolution in the fact that I mean, OK, during lockdown, I went to a Duke University conference on insect epidemiology. OK. Oh, wow. Now, two years ago, <laughs> that would have been hosted at Duke University. OK. Now, the chance yeah. if I went to the Ogilvy Finance Department and said, can I have a business class return to Raleigh, <laughs> Durham, please? Because I want to go to a conference on insect epidemiology. Right. They would have basically laughed. OK. Sure. Exactly. Exactly. And so the opportunity for serendipitous encounters like the one with the guy in Botswana is really, really valuable, but we don't factor it in nearly enough because we're assuming, we're looking at it from the point of view of taking physical conversation and moving it online. What we're missing is the opportunity cost of requiring mm. that that contact is physical to begin with. Yeah, yeah, wow. I mean, Roy, I, the, I want to talk a little bit about the, the nervous system. And this may be out of my pay grade. I'm not sure about yours, but... I figured we could go here. The, if you spend three straight days in nature, your disease-fighting cells grow by about 50%, your cancer-fighting cells, just by immersing yourself in nature. What? Um, I didn't yeah. know this. You see, yeah, this is you, really interesting because one of my big rants is the, the conflation of futurism with urbanism which is every mm. single model of the, of the future talks about smart cities and assumes high-density, high-rise living. Yes. 
And one of the one of the things I shared with Nassim Taleb, which was my discovery, which he then latched onto, is during the summer in the UK, I bought a Wi-Fi range extender and I worked in the garden. It's completely oh, wow. weird because it doesn't feel like work. Okay, fascinating. Exactly. Exactly. So this is something which I think is. Uh, my wife and I always always have this slight argument because she's obviously a bit more uh, active than I am, and I'm a bit of a fat, lazy guy. And she says, do you want to go outside for a walk? And I said, no, no, I want to go outside and sit in a chair. Because I said, 50% of the benefit <laughs> is the bloody walk. It's just being out of doors. Yeah. You sleep, you sleep differently. Your, sure. your, your, something about your mental state changes. Just communion with kind of natural environments has a magical effect on you. And I've always wondered what that might be and how that might have wider effects on the rest of the body. So go yeah. on with that one because I'm intrigued. Yeah, basically your nervous system is supercharged. Yeah. Your cells come alive. Your cells are delighted and you basically come alive in your response to potential b- disease and p- pathogens, et cetera. But what, what, the reason I'm bringing this up is because there was a great study, in, I think it was in Chicago, where they looked at two ghettos and they took, neither of them had any nature around them. And they planted a bunch of trees and shrubbery around one of the blocks of buildings. And they discovered that unemployment rates fell because people's anxiety level and they started to communicate a lot more and they started to engage. This was their, the, the, the nature was nudging their nervous system. And this is something that I've become... Do you remember the start of The Hurt Locker? The film The Hurt Locker, where there's this soldier there. I think he's a US Marine or similar. And he keeps looking around Iraq and going, what this country needs is turf. Ah, no. And he has this fantasy of starting a kind of turf business in Iraq. Because I sometimes feel that, by the way, when I go to, you know, um, the, to be honest, okay, how... um, one of the interesting things when you come into Singapore is they invest hugely in the central reservation of the roads, has extraordinary kind of botanical life there. Oh, wow. And, and I, um, I, I think botany is... I've always had this hunch that botany somehow, the presence of just plant life... Uh, you know, I, I house plants. There's been a huge surge in house plants during lockdown. Yeah. And um, we all laugh about it, don't we? We go, you know, the old office plant as if it's some like comical <laughs> sort of ludicrous thing. True, true. But true. Um, Nassim has this really interesting thing that actually, uh, you know, we, we're much happier in kind of fractal um, and also curvaceous environments rather than square regularized ones. Mm. And so Nassim has two styles of architecture he kind of likes, which is Gaudi, uh, you yeah, know, if yeah. you like, which is highly organic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And interestingly, of course, 3D printing of buildings actually makes that kind of intricacy much, much easier to attain. So when we 3D oh, print buildings, you could all live in something which is much more Hobbit-like in many respects. And I've got a round window behind me, which I think is faintly delightful just because it isn't square. Yes, okay. yes, yes. Uh, if I, By the way, if I position my head just right, I can look like a Greek Orthodox saint. I won't try. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but the, but but one of the interesting, the other form of architecture that seem likes is kind of like an all glass cube where you're surrounded by nature. But oh, what we're building in cities is an all is a cubic environment where you're surrounded by other cubes. Yes, yeah. We, we we do need to actually, you know, because I mean there are lots of statistics that show that city living isn't all that great. Okay. Yeah. De- levels of depression are higher the higher up you are in a building. Would you believe it? Okay. 
Yeah. And, and why that should be is fascinating. But but generally, you know, certain pathologies are worse in people who live in cities. Uh, I also think I also think that quite a lot of political polarization uh, is driven by uh, things of that kind. OK. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you think about um, the beauty and the absolute power of parks in big cities like Central Park, for example, mm. I mean, your proximity to that park, yeah. your ability to escape the chaos of the city and immerse yourself into this park. A lot of it is I doubt people have calculated this way, but the ability to go back and supercharge your immune system. Is, I, I, I think there's something going on here which we will eventually discover much more about. The extent to which actually there are placebos all over the place. Um, yeah. there, there is a famous hospital study, isn't there, where the recovery rates from people in hospital beds overlooking trees are somehow better than those beds where yes, they're overlooking a they brick is. wall. They heal up to 30% faster, something like see, this, that. Yeah. This, this kind of stuff is, again, you see... It, it's very easy. Government hates it in a way because it's very easy to be attacked. Oh, they, they, we gave them some budget and they spent money on. We want money spent on ventilators, machines that go beep, and they gone and spent the money on some trees. But actually, yeah. <laughs> the extent to which the environment is medically decisive is, I think, and it's a classic example of a small thing with a huge effect. Yeah, it, um, and of course, hu- small things with huge effects, where the effects are psychological are the lowest form of intervention. If you want to get promoted in the public policy sphere, what you want to do is get a law degree and concentrate on bossing people around. The last thing you want Mm. to do is be the guy who sits in the meeting and goes, have you thought of planting more trees, right? (laughs) I mean, I have this joke theory that the reason nobody minds paying high tax in Denmark uh, is because wherever you go in Denmark, there's really attractive furniture, right? You know, the mm. Danish equivalent of the DMV, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. We'll have like really attractive <laughs> sofas and a wooden floor. And you kind of, you're waiting there to get your license. You're going, oh, this is kind of all right. <laughs> you know, I mean, kind yeah. of, you know. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, I, I think that whole environmental thing, Copenhagen Airport's very interesting because the floor's wooden. And I don't oh, know if wow. you know, and somehow walking on a spring floor uh, is, you know, a sprung wooden floor is just so different. Walking to your flight across Copenhagen Airport is completely different to walking on a concrete floor. And that may be psychological. It may be actually something to do with the small, small amount of uh, whether there's a small amount of elasticity in the floor. I don't know. Um, but there, there's really interesting stuff here, which I think we could explore much more. And yet it's regarded as although it's the most cost effective form of intervention, it's the lowest status. For, now, I'll explain this, this huge problem with, with you mentioned this by talking about small things, okay? Yeah. The great problem, if you've got our kind of mindset, is if you ever find yourself as a non-executive director in a company, right, there'll be a bunch of people there reading the balance sheet. A legal question will get very, very high priority. An economic question will enjoy very high, confer very high status on the people who enter it. Well, product A isn't selling very well, so we've decided to drop the price by 7.3%. Okay. And you've got your cost demand curve and you've got your model. And that sounds like a high status kind of recommendation. Okay, now I'm the guy and you be the guy sitting at the end of the table. And what we wanted to say is before you drop the price, have you thought of making it pink? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And we'd instinctively know that if you made that suggestion in that setting, you'd be regarded as a ludicrous dilettante and nobody would take anything that you said seriously ever again. After that, after that, done. So a marketing intervention, a psychological intervention is 
considered flaky and fluffy and ridiculous. Whereas what you might call an economic or a legalistic intervention is a high status activity, completely the wrong way around. Right. You don't have to be a libertarian to say, let's try persuasion first and incentive second. That's an obvious way to approach the problem. But weirdly, everything about problem solving does it backwards. You know, when I when I decided to reach out to you for this conversation, I, I to be honest, I felt ridiculous. You know, the idea that I wanted to have a chat about the little things, the chit chat in our nervous system. I felt quite ridiculous. How do we involve no, no, people? Understand, understanding them? that chit-chat and understanding, of course, as you did with your conversation with taxi drivers, understanding the full story of what's going on. But for taxi drivers to understand that the interpretation to an African-American taxi customer is not, ha-ha, he can see I'm not a tourist, so he has no interest, okay? Right? True, true, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, the act of putting yourself in other people's shoes is hugely valuable. And yet um, most of the models we have, you know, assume a kind of homogeneity in perception. You know, they assume mm, stimulus that A. Is so true. Stimulus that is A so on average true. has this effect. Therefore, everybody exposed to stimulus A will react in the same way. In fact, yeah. what you see is that stimulus A has, you know, extraordinarily high rate of variance in terms of how people respond to it. I mean, you know, if you take lockdown, right, okay, let's be absolutely honest about this. The chunk of people who enjoy jobs that they could do from home who are introverts to some degree, because I think that society pre-lockdown was weighted towards the extroverts. Extroverts, yeah, sure, sure. The open plan office was probably torture. Yeah, imagine, by the way, also, let's look at non-neurotypical people. You know, what is it like if you're, you know, some some people who are mildly autistic, okay, are kind of hypersensitized to things like noise because their ability to kind of wipe out, uh, you know, or to eliminate certain. There are certain people, for example, who um, one of the reasons they're very fussy about the clothes they wear is most of us don't really notice the clothes we wear after we put them on because our our. Uh, you know, our basic detection of this shirt, okay? Mm, Basically, mm. it's a bit like we don't notice the taste of water because our taste buds are calibrated not to notice the taste of water because that way we'll notice anything weird that's in the water, which is what evolution wants us to do. And in the same way, evolution for most people doesn't want us to notice our clothes because it wants us to concentrate on touch and stimulus, which is um, unexpected, not stimulus that's expected. You know, that's why in Times Square, you're not freaked out by the sound of footsteps. But if you're walking down a dark alley at two o'clock in the morning, footsteps freak you out. You know, yeah, you've got yeah, that exactly. kind of calibration of sensation. Now, a guy called Luca Delana, who you ought to interview on the podcast, he has various theories that certain people who are non-neurotypical, you know, one of the reasons they're very, very fussy about the shirt they wear is because if you give them a slightly different shirt or you wash in this, you know, uh, they, it will kind of irritate them all day. They haven't got the facility to just go, okay, you know, okay, okay, let's recalibrate my sensation of touch at this new level. They haven't got the facility. Now, for people like that, open plan offices might be torture. Torture, absolute. Yeah. Absolute goddamn torture. And it is interesting, the number of people who under lockdown, under an artificial constraint said, I mean, a few senior marketing directors I was talking to you said, I'll be absolutely honest with you. I prefer it this way. I, I, I just working this way makes a lot more sense. I um, 
one of the things you enjoy arguably with lockdown is one when you know your your ability to commune with nature in the summer i used to work in the garden i used to work out of doors in the summer okay, okay. now when you sign up to an office job okay you sign away five sevenths of your goddamn daylight yeah exactly right? exactly and exactly. these guys were saying you know what i actually do is i work i work early in the morning i work late in the evening but at one o'clock i book out an hour in my diary and i go for a cycle ride yeah, I can never mm, do that before. Mm. And no, so the ability no. also to manage the variance of your work. I'm a night owl, right? I'll, you know, if I've got something to write, I basically, you know, I don't, I don't try and write it in the office. I can't. David Ogilvy never wrote anything in the office. So I feel like yeah. I'm in good company. And I'll yeah, tell yeah. you, it at 10 o'clock at night when everything else shuts up. You know, I'm not getting sure. emails. I'm not getting no. notifications. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, some people are really real early birds. You know, they they get up at five o'clock and they get everything done by about. That's fine, okay. But yeah. let's at least you know, let's at least find a pattern of work that acknowledges you know that not everybody's neuro average. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and so you know, and the fact that a significant minority of people, possibly even a majority, say on balance this is better than before. Now, that does not mean we shouldn't be alert to those people who find this torture, by the way, for the opposite. Of course, of course, of course. You know, um, uh, you know, Roy, I want to say that I not only do I appreciate you having this conversation, but also the approach to being open to things that don't make sense. And your, you know, the work around it. I mean, I've been thinking about how um, agreeable people would approach this. I was listening to Jordan Peterson and a few other thinkers who are going, you know, if you're in an office space or you're on a call and, you know, you just are really shy, I'd like for us to close with giving a little bit of advice to people who don't experience this magic, who don't experience alchemy because they just sort of sit back and go, if I say this, I'm going to be laughed at. Let's talk a little bit to them. I, I mean, there's a cultural thing, isn't there, which is I remember talking to an Asian American who said, in your culture, the whole show and tell thing, okay? Mm. Like, the whole look at me, look what I'm doing, yeah. standing up in front of a crowd, is just slightly countercultural. Yeah, you're a and collectivist. We have to do this together. Yeah, we've got to yeah. do it together. And I, yeah. I had a, I had a, a relative who, who went to school in Hollywood. Um, uh, it, I mean, literally in L.A., okay? Okay. And the attention that's paid to things like school plays and your ability to perform ah. within that culture is, you know, quite, as you can imagine, quite extreme. Because sure. school plays, are, you know, school plays in, in, in L.A., given mm. the prevalence of the entertainment industry, are put on almost with a sort of professional focus. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of people hate that. I mean, the weird thing is I do a lot of public speaking um, virtually and originally on stage. And I'll, I'll talk to, you know, 500 people from a stage. I'm relatively content. I'm nervous. You know, I'm still nervous. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I'm not, yeah, I'm not yeah, bricking yeah. it, right? Sure, but the reason, sure, sure. And so people go, how, ca how can you be introverted? And I go, because after I've done that, I'm exhausted, okay? Mm. And I'd rather, I'd rather direct my energy to talking to 500 people simultaneously than 500 people one at a time. Because yeah, if I had yeah. to have 500 one-on-one conversations... Okay, oh I'd be God. pretty yeah. much dead at the end of it. And sure. just, you know, and, and, you know, in Hollywood, I don't, you know, that business where you're kind of, you know, the show and tell thing, you know, the look at me thing is deeply countercultural to some people and deeply painful, I think, to some mental types. Yeah. And, um, you know, introverts, I have a certain sympathy for them because they just go, I just want to get on with my job. 
You know, I like yeah, doing yeah. things which actually are necessary and useful. So mm. can you please leave me alone to do this and not demand that I go on a team building course where I have to build a goddamn raft? Yeah. So, <laughs> and you always see that in those team building courses. There are people <laughs> for whom this is the best moment of their entire year. You know, you know, I get to build a raft. We've got an obstacle course later on, which is showing... And then there must be these thirty percent of people in those things who are going. Can just I get like, back to the office, please? You know, or yeah, exactly. You know, this is just <laughs> agony to me. You know? Torture. And it's uh, a really important question because you know we've got to look at this because. I, I mean, I'll be absolutely honest. You know, we need to look at this. You know, if you're if you're Muslim, for example, I suddenly, I suddenly look mm. back at my career and go, regardless of anything else, right. I don't think I would have got anywhere in advertising in the late 80s, early 90s, had I not drunk. Oh, wow. So so it's really interesting, a really important question for people who are teetotal, which is, you know, so much of... A lot of people complain that Finland, although you'd think of it as pretty right on, was actually a weirdly sexist country in business because a lot of decisions got taken in a sauna and they tended to be single gender. Okay. Ah, interesting. Okay. And the joke, only half the joke was that everybody went to work and then you went off to a, you know, weird Finnish thing. You went off to a sauna, which is where the really important conversations took place. But I mean, you know, the extent to which if you're a non-drinker in British work culture, you'll miss out on a whole amount of informational networking. Unless you're prepared to sit there, basically, while people talk absolute bollocks, going totally insane, sure, exactly. remaining sober until 10.30 at night, which is... <laughs> Asking a hell of a lot of someone's patience. It's, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. And we don't, and, we don't and look I, at these things enough. No. And I, I think that there's two sides to the conversation, right? You know, for those who are designing these meetings, designing the space to go, I want to consider the full range, you know, culture, gender, and everyone involved. And maybe that's what, maybe that could lead into a conversation around what is real inclusion in a creative space? Mm. How do we design this space so mm. that people with different personalities could find their voice. I think that's, yeah. I think, I think that that's an absolute, because one of the interesting things is we solve for, one of our lessons in alchemy is don't solve for the average. Because actually, if you solve for the average, you end up solving for nobody. And the problem of the open plan office is it's not really sociable and it's not really solitude. And so actually so it satisfies almost nobody in an attempt to satisfy everybody. Roy, thank you so much for joining me on the Brain and Brand Show. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. A huge thanks to Roy for making time. I really appreciate it. And now that you've heard this conversation, I recommend you revisit the previous three episodes and think about how you would apply these human behavioral insights to your personal and brand journeys. And lastly, make sure you check out Nudge Stock. Until next time.